This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning. It is Sunday, October 20th, 2013. And by request, we are doing a week in this halachic process series on conservative Judaism. And a few points of introduction for this. Uh, you know, first, you know, people have asked me, like, you know, well, if you're doing conservative Judaism, why aren't you going to do reform too? And it's a fair question in one sense, but in the other sense, uh, reform Judaism, to my knowledge, never pretended to be halachic. Conservative Judaism, by its own rhetoric that we're going to see, claims to be following the halachic tradition. So for that reason, I think it's worth exploring, especially, excuse me, we're going to see some uh, really fascinating logic and will lead to some, I think, very interesting discussions. Um, Personally, uh, I happen to like studying conservative Judaism for another reason. Unlike Orthodox Judaism, that has absolutely no way to really define itself. And you can have a lot of people saying, this is Orthodox, that's Orthodox, but no one really owns the franchise rights to that brand name Orthodox Judaism. Conservative Judaism is a clearly defined group. It's a clearly defined, I mean, you can call it a denomination, however, I mean, there are a lot of technical terms, but it's certainly a clearly defined entity of some sort that has its own rabbinic leadership in the form of the rabbinical assembly. It has its major... uh, I mean, I know there's a fight between JTS and the, I forget the name of the place out in California. It used to be University of Judaism. Yeah, but JTS is still like the main place. Like, you know who the big figures are in the movement such that they can carry on a little bit greater weight than lots of other people as opposed to Orthodox Judaism. It's so so ill-defined and so impossible to define unless you start imposing your biases on there. It's just a lot easier to work with. Uh, that said, you're probably going to find variants of opinion within conservative Judaism itself amongst its own leadership. So for that reason, for the sources that I picked, I used more official documents. For example, Joel Roth has a book called um, On Halacha, a Systematic Approach. I didn't include that here simply because he's one individual. And for the limited amount of sources that I could pick, I have to do some triage. I sooner chose sources that were more movement-wide as opposed to one individual, even though he's that prominent within the movement itself. Okay? So that explains at least a little bit. Um, And we get to the uh, responsa. I picked those partially based on uh, personal interest and partially based on what I could find online, because the more that I think is globally accessible to anyone who's following this class, the better it is. I mean, there are a few sources here that you have to go to a library to pick up, but the Rabbinical Assembly has a wonderful archive. They've got dozens of responses publicly available off their website. If anyone's interested in further study, they can find that. You can also find books of collected responses, many of which did not make the website. All right. So lest anyone complain about, you know, why did I pick the sources that I did? Those are some of the things that, you know, uh, were were my uh, determining uh, factors. So at the very beginning, the first source I think makes sense to do, and there may be some bias towards 
I guess the later part of conservative Judaism, as opposed to the earlier part, is you may remember from the politics of exclusion class, there seems to be some debate as to how did conservative Judaism actually start. So there's a, you're talking about you know several decades, pretty much all of the 20th century, where you can start like picking and choosing certain things. There's probably going to be a bias towards the later part, um, just because that's how things worked out. And because if you're going to talk about conservative Judaism today, you're talking about how you know people crystallized certain ideas that they might have implicitly been keeping up up until whenever they put this stuff out. So the first source that we have here is a pamphlet or I should say an excerpt from a pamphlet called Emmet Ve'emunah, Statement of Principles of Conservative Judaism. Uh, this was published in 1988, and this was a movement-wide um, publication, by which I mean you, it was sort of done by committee, and a lot of major players or major um, uh, figureheads in conservative movement were, had a hand in putting this together. All right? So as far as I'm concerned, this is certainly a legitimate source in terms of defining what does conservative, how does conservative Judaism self-define, or at least how it did in 1988. I suppose everything is subject to change. Yeah. Um, but I assume this was uh, directed at layman. Uh, as far as I know. But it could it, affect its reliability. How so? It's uh, the same way a mathematical text, uh, you know, uh, that the real mathematics that it's doing may not be visible in in an elementary school textbook. Um, The real struggles that they're having and and their solutions... uh, Well, in terms of the details, right, it's not going to go into details of certain responses, but we'll give you a general attitude and a general approach. And look, Rambam wrote Mishneh Torah for the laity too, Right. So, I mean, there's something which, you know, this was done for major publication. Yes. Can you, like, you know, unpack a lot of these statements? Sure. And we're going to do some of that. Um, but in terms of the validity, in terms of being representative of the movement, I think it's a very fair assumption to make that when you publish something, or let me rephrase that, when the leaders of the movement publish a pamphlet for the movement itself, I think that's something on which we can rely Right? As opposed to, you may notice or may not notice, I intentionally you know, didn't pick a lot of orthodox polemic because the point here isn't a polemic. The point is, what do they say in their own words and deal with that on their own terms? Now, I didn't make up these statements. They did. Right? So to say that, you know, I, it, to say that, well, we're not sure how much we can take this seriously... I'm going to say it's a matter of, you know, subjective that we could argue for days about. In the meantime, all I know is, here's what they said, here's how they tried promoting themselves, let's open it up to review. Corinne, start us off. This is the specific excerpt from Emmet Ve'umunah on the areas of halacha. So there's one section on the indispensability of halacha, and then there's another one on tradition and development, and another one on authority and making decisions in halacha. So... We'll see how much we're going to probably skip through a few paragraphs, but it's certainly worth reading the whole thing. Halakha consists of norms taught by the Jewish tradition, how one is to live as a Jew. Most Jewish norms are embodied in the laws of the Bible and their rabbinic interpretation and expansion over the centuries. But some take the form of customs, and others are derived from the ethical ideals which inform the laws and customs and extend beyond them, with Nim Mishurat Hadin. Since each age requires new interpretations and applications of the received norms, halakha is an ongoing process. 
It is thus both an ancient tradition rooted in the experience and texts of our ancestors and a contemporary way of life, giving value, shape, and direction to our lives. So this is a really good preamble to all this. And it, and it's really summed up with halacha is an ongoing process, right? That is a core thing. I might go back and insert some underlines before I put this online, right? But it's, you know, the basic is you've got Bible rabbinic tradition, but you also have custom and others derived from ethical ideas. Now, that's a very tricky statement to make about ethical ideas, what they are, where they come from, and all that sort of thing, which, you know, again, we'll start unpacking. Uh, they have another paragraph here about, uh, for many halachic Jews, halacha is the indispensable, first is indispensable because it's how the Jewish community understands God's will to be. That, on one hand, sounds incredibly firm, doesn't it? Halacha is the representation of God's will. Next paragraph, it talks about uh, more of the morality sort of thing. Uh, next paragraph about how it shapes our relationship to God. Uh, go to the last paragraph we have on page one. Me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. It, it, we have to do a little bit of skipping because there's just, it's a huge text. And, you know, that's why I skip to like some of the more salient points. For all these reasons, halakha in its developing form is an indispensable element of a traditional Judaism which is vital and modern. Halakha is not the entirety of our Jewish identity. Judaism includes the ethical and theological reflections embodied in its lore, agada, a history, a commitment to a specific land and language, art, music, literature, and more. Judaism is indeed a civilization in the fullest sense of the term, but halakha is fundamental to that civilization. Anyone know what he's challenging here? Uh, ch- uh, channeling, not challenging? Kaplan. Kaplan, exactly. Mordechai Kaplan wrote that book, Judaism as a Civilization, and what they're basically doing is almost throwing a bone and taking Judaism in the broadest possible sense. And this is sort of reflective of a you know still raging debate when you have with the Pew study of what exactly is Judaism. To what extent is it a religion? To what extent is it a culture? Is it something by which you self-affiliate? Is it a matter of law? Um, and it's interesting that they include here that halacha isn't the entirety, it's just indispensable, which is a way of, you know, just even before we get into the details about what they mean, is a way of almost having it both ways. You're saying that you cannot ignore halacha, but on the other hand, there's more to Judaism than just Jewish law, because they're taking the most expansive definition of this word, Judaism, in all of its modern connotations as a culture. Okay, now that in and of itself may not be, you know, such a huge deal, because, you know, Judaism isn't the same as, once you're saying that you're taking a more expansive view of Judaism, I mean, how to put this, for some people, the word Judaism necessarily implies only the religious factors which itself, you know, is a weird definition. I mean, the word Judaism doesn't appear in the Torah. It's just, you know, following what God says. So it's sort of like a later invented term. And that's just a matter of how you define it. Yeah. How do they understand halacha? That's what the whole point of this class is. It's a wonderful question. That, that's not a blow off. It just, yeah. that was... The, yeah, I mean, is George, it George, George, this is one of those classes where you actually have to listen to the whole class to get the answer. All right. Um, in the meantime, take the next paragraph for us under uh, George. The next uh, par- uh, the next section, this is tradition and development in halacha. So in the first one, now remember when I said that reform never really considered itself a halachic organization, or at least a halachic movement? Here it sets up that according to conservative movement's own statement, they believe in halacha. 
Now, again, we now have to define what halacha is, but they're claiming, or at least, to be halachic in their own way. Now we need to figure out what that is. George. Which one? The rabbi? Uh, no, on page two, uh, tradition and development and halacha, beginning with the sanctity and authority. Oh, all right. Um, the sanctity and authority of halacha attaches to the body of law, not to each law, but separately. Uh, for throughout Jewish history, halacha has been subject to change to change. Reverence for tradition and concern for its continuity prevent rash revision of the law. But Jewish practice has modified from time to time. Most often, new interpretations or application of existing precedents produce the needed development. Uh, but sometimes, new ordinances were necessary. Sometimes, as in the education of girls and in the creation of the Simchat Torah festival, the changes occur first in the conduct of the rabbis or of the people, and only then were confirmed in law. What do you think about this paragraph? There's a dangerous word in here. Mm. Interpretation. Yeah, explain. We apply halacha in the Orthodox world. Interpretation, especially by people who are pretty much always going to go the kula, Seems like a dangerous thing to allow. Well, we're we're going to elaborate. We're going to see some examples later on of that. But in theory, how would you be able to distinguish between the changes that happened in Jewish law in the past to the changes that they're talking about now? I don't. This is a historical statement here that there have been new innovations in Jewish law and practice. Yes. Okay. But there's innovation by application and innovation by interpretation. If somebody decides that, let's just be radical here, that chazer doesn't mean what we think it does. Yep. Well, that's... Put a pin in that because we're going to explore something like that a little bit later. But what would you say would be... but? The truth is, you would find similar statements like that in Ashkenazi hermeneutic too, as we saw in the uh, Ash- early Ashkenazic approaches to Jewish law uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah, or months ago. Who are they to do that? You could ask the same question about the Bali Tosafot. What about the term? No. Why? Why not? When you say "who are they," yeah. you're under operating under assumption that certain people have a right and others do not. Well, what is the basis for that distinction? People who are basically saying, we don't want to do this anymore, and whose, pretty, whose ah. premise is, we don't want to do this anymore, probably should be disregarded. So you'll notice but that it can apply in both ways. For example, as the two points mentioned here, both of which are historically accurate, mm-hmm. some innovations in Jewish law came from the rabbis from the top down. Others came as a rabbinic response to what people were already doing. Right? That happens a lot in the Balei Tosafot. People were already doing things that were neged halacha, that violated strict read of the Gemara, that the Balei Tosafot decided to re- or reinterpret, in certain cases, what the Talmud meant in order to harmonize what people were already doing. Wow. You missed that class. It was a good class. Yeah. But, I mean, <clears throat> you could go further back, further back than that. Ayin tachat ayin, ben sorero moreh. Sure. Um, they were all interpretations. So that's actually what the next paragraph uh, sort of deals with, where they start making reference to the rabbis of Mishnah, Talmud, and Midrash, recognize that changes had occurred and that they were themselves were operating, uh, so they themselves were instituting them. They took pains to justify the legitimacy of rabbis in each generation, applying the law in new ways to meet the demands of the time, etc., etc. 
George, take the paragraph afterwards. It says, we in the conservative movement. We in the conservative uh, community. Community, I'm sorry. To carrying on the Binnick tradition of preserving and enhancing halacha by making appropriate changes in it through a rabbinic decision. Damn. Now, this didn't just get an underline. This got an underline in bold, right? We in the conservative community are committed to carrying on the rabbinic tradition of preserving and enhancing halacha by making appropriate changes in it through rabbinic decision. Effectively, the argument seems to be, rabbis have done this throughout the millennia. We are no different in what we're doing. It's saying that rabbis have the right to make halacha. Um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's also why I kind of call, uh, why I've used the idiom tautology when referring to conservative Judaism, because they can really do no wrong. Because anytime they're preserving, like what you might call traditional halacha, that's fine. Anytime there's a change, well, that's okay because we have the right to make changes. And therefore, if you could almost imagine, you know, conservative movement as a circle. And as things move, you, it's still conservative Judaism, but the shape of the circle still keeps changing. And it's very malleable to incorporate some things and discorporate others. You had a question first? That, that question was a sidebar. Oh, okay. Now they have another propaganda word, enhancing. Okay, stop, stop. In terms of calling this propaganda, all right, let, let's take away all the value judgments for a second here. This was a statement that was made by the movement for its movement. Technically speaking, would it be propaganda? Well, yes, if you're going to be cynical about it. But propaganda is too much by negative connotations. This is a document in which they are trying to explain their beliefs. Okay, well, fine okay. then. Enhancing halacha sounds like a uh, self-congratulatory word. Sounds very presumptuous. Sounds presumptuous. But the question to ask, though, is... How is it really different than what came before or what happens in other, what you might call orthodox movements? That's the real question that we're going to need to ask often here. How are they functionally different? Yeah. You got to come back to the word tradition. Yep. Whose tradition? Does it go back to Israel and the Midbar? Ah, so that they explain. So that they explain by making appropriate changes in it through rabbinic decision. So at least as far as this document is concerned up until this point, the argument is rabbis throughout once ah, but they so this is where I get to the tautology, where they're saying that change is part of the tradition. Right? When you have a tradition of change, then change is part of the tradition. So just as you've got Mishnah Bavli, all that, seem to make certain changes, or at least different interpretations based on what might be the plain meaning. Just as you've got medieval rabbis who changed meanings or reinterpreted the Talmud against what it, the plain meaning might have been in order to achieve a certain goal, so too, they're doing something no less. And of course, through the modern period, too. Question and then question. Yeah, yeah. as a slight corrective Please. To, uh, uh, to what you're saying about, uh, um, about it being a tautology. Mm. I mean, um, it's not that there is no weight granted to presumptive authority, you know, like the, they're not going to, uh, you know, they're, they're usually not going to break with, uh, uh, with, with, with practices of the past unless there's a compelling. Yeah. That's the next paragraph. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. If change is part of the tradition, yep. why, why have the tradition and change motto? Because it's both. But, I, but, but 
it would wouldn't it be more? Aren't they saying the same thing? If change is part of the tradition, then it should just be tradition. From a technical answer, yes. From a rhetorical answer, no. Because most people read, oh, tradition means doing the same thing. Change means making something that's different. What they're pointing out here is that change isn't that different or isn't that radical when you look at Jewish history, or at least Jewish halachic history, over a span of, let's say, 2,000 years. Well, where is the slippery slope? Again, don't ask those questions yet. We have to finish off the whole thing here, right? Take the next paragraph. And uh, this answers your report card. George, take the next paragraph. Uh, wild change? Wild change, yes. Wild change is both a, a traditional and necessary part of halacha. We, like our ancestors, like, we, like our ancestors, are not committed to change for its own sake. Hence, the thrust of Jewish tradition and the conservative community is to maintain the law and practices of the past as much as possible. And the burden of proof is on the one who wants to alter them. Halacha has responded and must uh, continue to respond to changing conditions, sometimes through alteration of the law, and sometimes by standing firm against passing fads and skewed values. Okay, stop there for a second. Again, also gets an underline, the line that Corey was referring to, that we got to, was the burden of proof is one who wants to alter them. Okay? So uh, this, again, is a general statement of principles. And we're going to see specific examples about how certain things might be applied. All right? But, at least based on the stated principles, it's not that you just change things willy-nilly. It's the status quo is the status quo. If you want to institute or have a change promoted, then the burden is on you to justify the changes that you're going to make. Does that mean that it's insurmountable to do so? No, but it helps with a certain degree of priority, at least officially. How far apart are orthodox and uh, conservative on that Thing of change, since they We'll talk about that towards the end, too. Okay. All right? Um, uh, continue. Uh, moreover. Moreover, the necessity for change does not justify a particular proposal for revision. Each suggestion cannot be treated uh, mechanically, but must rather be judged on its own terms, a process which separates, which requires thorough knowledge of both halacha and contemporary scene, as well as carefully honed uh, skills of judgment. All right, so there's a sense here when you make a psaac effect, effectually, you don't just look at halacha, you also look at the entire world around you, right? Zitzim Leben, for those who are interested in that sort of thing, right? Place in life. All right, go ahead, take the next paragraph, following the example. Following the example of our rabbinic predecessors over the ages, however, we consider instituting changes for a variety of reasons. Occasionally, the integrity of the law must be maintained by adjusting it to conform to contemporary practice among observant Jews. Every legal system from time to time must adjust what is on the books to be in line with actual practice if the law is to be, is to be taken seriously as a guide to conduct. All right, so hold off on that. So discuss that point for a second. Sometimes halacha has to be adjusted to fit the practices of what people are already doing. Thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> Yeah. Swadim and Ashkenaz with respect to rice on Pesach? Is that adjusting the halacha? Um, the language here is that if people are already doing something that might be against halacha, it would be saying, well, we have to adjust the halacha to match what people are already doing, otherwise they're not going to listen. So we say that they're allowed to eat rice. Well, the rice on Pesach is a little bit different because you've got two distinct communities who have two different practices. All right, but you mentioned, uh, Dan here mentioned, you know, the things of the Baalei Tosafot, 
right? You remember some of the sources that we saw. People were dancing on Simchas Torah against the Gemara. People, you know, didn't do Mayim Achronim. Women were saying blessings on uh, Mitzvot Asesha's Mangarama, right? All those things people were already doing, right? Tosafot reinterpreted the Halacha and the Gemara in order to adjust to what people were already doing on the ground. How are they permitted to do those things? That is a wonderful question. Yeah. <laughs> now, they say that, theoretically, that they draw a line. Mm. They, said, they said in an earlier paragraph that there are certain things they have to stand against. Yeah, well, it, this is a general theory, yeah. right? And a lot comes down to what, how does this work in practice. Right. Okay. Um, so that's not so much about drawing the, drawing a line, I think, as mm. about the motivations for the changes. You mm. know, like not to not to alter halakha in mm. order to accord with passing fads. Right. Well. So how do you know what's a passing fad and what is driving it? to shul is not a passing fad. Ah, but there you could say. I mean, that was a chuva which I didn't include here because it's too long and complicated. So the chuva that was at least co-written by Rabbi uh, Agus, one was based on Tosafot. Very important to know that. Uh, and it followed a usual, and the argument was, people are already driving to, people are already driving, right? So it was reacting to what Jews were already doing in that time. Now, you might not like it, but that's what it was, and that's what it stated. All right, continue with the paragraph. Uh, actually, uh, turn the page um, to, with the underlying part. I am a, I mean, um, the, the the phrase uh, integrity of the law is kind of an interesting formulation. Mm. Um, it's it's hard to see exactly what's that what that's supposed to mean. Maintaining the integrity of the law. Yeah. So you are absolutely correct. There, because this is a general uh, pamphlet, they're relying on general statements. You don't know what they mean by any of this until you see how it's applied. Right. So integrity of law. What does it mean? Integrity. Integrity how? Isn't that going to be subjective too? And then it's going to be open. I actually understand what they mean by integrity. I'm confused by what they mean by law in that context. Because, oh. I mean, it, you know, like the, the, uh, the, the, the tshuva about, um, uh, about driving on, yeah. uh, on Shabbat, that seems like sort of a textbook case of, you know, um, uh, maintaining the integrity, I wouldn't say of law, but, you know, integrity of... The Jewish people, or you know, whatever. But integrity of law is kind of a strange. So, do the uh, the underlying line on you know what we have on page three with we're changing conditions because I think that might address some of your questions. Where changing conditions produce what seem to be immoral consequences and human anguish, varying approaches exist within our community to rectify the situation. Where it is deemed possible and desirable to solve the problem through the existing halachic norms, we prefer to use them. If not, some within the conservative community are prepared to amend the existing law by means of a formal procedure of legislation, takana. Some are willing to make a change only when they find it justified by sources in the halachic literature. Okay. Now, both of these mechanisms, you could say, do have precedent in Jewish law. One is going back to what you already have on the books and using that as your template. Another is there's something seems to be missing there. We are now going to enact a new decree. Okay, again, methodologically seems to follow the same pattern as what you find all the way back to rabbinic literature. Dana, take uh, first paragraph in the next section of authority for making decisions in halacha. 
for those who are following along, we are taking out only excerpts uh, from these uh, from MF Women on this section. So please feel free to read on your own. Um, yeah. So the authority uh, making decisions. Uh-huh. Yeah. The conservative method for arriving at halakhic decisions reflects our interest in pluralism and also exhibits the trait characteristic uh, characteristic of conservative Judaism: the melding of tradition with the modern. The rich tradition which we possess depends upon the scholarship, integrity, and piety of our leadership and laity. For religious guidance, the conservative movements look to the scholars of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and other institutions of higher learning. The United Synagogue of America, the Women's League for Conservative Judaism, and the Federation of Jewish Men's Clubs represents represent the human resources of lay people for our community. Mm-hmm. Continue. Authority for religious practice in each congregation resides in its rabbi, its mower, the astra. It, re- it derives from the rabbi's training in the Jewish tradition attested by his or her ordination as a rabbi and by the fact the congregation has chosen that rabbi to be its religious guide. All right, stop here. So... What is the basis for the rabbinic authority? The Jewish men's clubs, obviously. No, that, that's the, you know, joking, that's the lay argument. Let's keep this dark to a minimum, at least here. Sorry. Right? They're following their rabbanim. They have their rabbis from the Jewish Theological Seminary. For all intents and purposes, these are the gedolim of the movement. So they're going to follow their teachings. Furthermore, and the reason why he bolded the second paragraph, and this was a, a long-standing tension within the conservative movement, they still recognize the authority of the Maradasra. The local community rabbi, A, by the fact that he's ordained, meaning assuming like you pass the standards for ordination, you are a competent halachic authority. Two, the congregation appoints you as their religious leader, those two together means you have a lachic authority over your community. Now, where this causes a little bit of tension some, sometimes is, what do you do with the gedolim of JTS, or like the uh, Committee of Jewish Law and Standards of the Rabbinical Assembly, and the Marida Asra? Because the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards can come up with all their piske halacha, but what does the rabbi on the ground do? And that's been a regular tension, because... If it's all about forwarding it upwards to the gedolim, you don't need local rabbis. So the rabbi should have some autonomy. But if every rabbi just does whatever they want, why do you have a central authority? Right? So one way that they solve that issue is when the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards takes on a topic, they you know, have a question, they submit position papers, they write like tissue vote, and they put it up for a vote. You've got a majority rule, like here's the official position. You need, I forget the number, I think is it six votes or something? I don't There's some minimal number of votes that you need in order for it to be an acceptable minority position. Meaning, it wasn't passed, but we understand if you do something different. And let's say, some, assuming something gets uniformly rejected, in theory, any Marida Atra, any local community rabbi who doesn't follow those policies might be stepping outside of the bounds of conservative Judaism, but I honestly don't know if there are any such sanctions. My guess is that there aren't. So, yeah. so they've set up sort of their own little mini Sanhedrin? They set up their gedolim. They set up their own Moetzes Gedolei Torah. Yeah. Yeah, so how does it compare to the Orthodox community? That is a wonderful question. How do you... All right, we can stop here before we get into the responsa part. Based on what the conservative movement has laid out just in this document alone, 
How do you think this compares to the Orthodox? Or, for those who might be predisposed to be critical of conservative Judaism, how is what they've promoted in this document any different? That would be a better way of putting it. It's not really. Because you have uh, the RCA who makes laws or mm. uh, dirty things, and you have uh, the rabbi in a synagogue, his community, and he may differ with it to some degree. It's a little bit, actually, it's a little bit weaker because the conservative movement, again, one of the great reasons why you have the conservative movement as being one cohesive block is that their policies are already predetermined. The RCA can issue statements or policy things based on its own, um, you know, based on what the committee decides. But that has absolutely no bearing on what the rabbis do on the ground. I got smicha from Yeshiva University. I didn't get smicha from the RCA, right? When you get smicha from JTS, right, I think if you're going to be a practicing rabbi, at least a Mardasra, you're going to be in the rabbinical assembly. Uh, there was actually a, a law professor at Duke um, who was either talking about or even filed a lawsuit uh, out of, uh, uh, I think it was monopolistic practices. Because, through, okay, so if you're a synagogue in conservative Judaism, odds are you're in uh, the organization called the United Synagogue, right? In order for you to have a rabbi of the, in the United Synagogue, you have to go through one who's in the rabbinical assembly. So it's really a very tight group here that one really feeds into the other in terms of JTS, rabbinical assembly, rabbi of the United Synagogue, synagogue, okay? The RCA, again, can issue whatever proclamations it wants, but I can promise you there are a lot of people in the RCA even who don't really care and practice what the RCA says. All right? Dana, what do you think? Fifty years ago... I'm not even was the I don't even think the word Haredi was in common use, and they weren't that crazy. They were not shifting that way. And what they claim, I don't know if it's true, but it seems fair that Judaism is getting away from them, and they have to do what they believe will maintain the integrity of their community. Forty, fifty years ago, they just weren't like this. It seems, just a little bit, I mean, they have some other agendas and reasons, but it seems that at least in part they're reacting to stuff like this because their movement is based mostly on going Lakula. As opposed to the Haredim that go mostly Lakhumra? Okay, maybe it's a crazy response, but it's a response. But my point is, functionally, how is it different? Yeah. I kind of doubt, actually, that uh, uh, that you know, conservative, uh, like the conservative halakhic process is even on the radar of, uh, of Haredim. I believe, you know, that's, well, well, let me interject on this point a bit. You have today not too much serious discussion about conservative Judaism. You have a lot of people throwing out insults. Most of the debates happened back in the 40s and 50s when, as we saw from the politics of exclusion class, on the ground, there was very little difference between conservative and what you might call today modern orthodox. Mm-hmm. Right? And there was a sense of, well, cons- there's something wrong with conservative. And what you had like, is very small, might have been a very small nuance you know, separation here, gradually expanded over time. When there was a heightened sense of competition, well, then that was bad. 
Once, like, now no one's going to get confused between Orthodox and Conservative anymore, so it's off the radar, unless, of course, you want to bash left-wing Orthodox and say, oh, this is just like Conservative, without actually understanding how Conservative Judaism works. A number of years ago, um, the Rabbinic Council of North America and Canada issued a decree signed by a number of rabbis yeah. that there cannot be ever a uh, Arab on the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. And no rabbi that I know of is going to go against it in the community. And therefore? Therefore, they are the Godolian. They're the ones who decided for the community, not the individual rabbis. Well, it could also change in theory. I mean, you have new rabbis that come in, sure. In theory, it could happen. Right? Is it going to? Well, that's the conversation which you should come Wednesday night for when we're <laughs> going to be discussing Hero fights. So let's see how this works in practice for a few specific examples. Again, these were things that I picked online. The first one I picked is Rabbi Paul Plotkin writing on mixing fish and meat. This was written in 1998, and it was approved 1900, which means 19, people, 19 of the rabbis in the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards voted in favor of it. No one objected, and no one even abstained. So I think it's fair to say that at least this represents a certain form of consensus, right? Because this is... uh, a unanimous decision based on the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards. And take this for us. Where was it prohibited? What? Where was it prohibited? Again. Go. Patience, patience. Yeah. I mean, this you can find online by clicking the link and read the whole thing. I just did the question and the conclusion. But it's a short response. Go ahead. Is it permissible to eat fish and meat on the same dish? Issues of sakana, danger are rabbinic and derived from the then-understood science and medicine, and it, uh, it is not something to be trifled with. Indeed, in Chulin 10a, we read, Hamira Sakanta uh, Meisua, danger to one's health, is more serious than an actual form of prohibition. Here we are warned by Isserles, Yeridea 116.5, referring to the Ramah, that we are to be more concerned with a safek doubt of sakana than we are with the safek of an actual isur prohibition. Nevertheless, I believe that the application of the principle of sakana to a specific case could always be amended as either the physical reality or our scientific understanding changed to give us more accurate information. This can be seen in the very same chapter of Shulchan Arach Yerodea 116.1, where it says that, quote, exposed beverages were forbidden by the rabbis because they feared that snakes would have drunk from them and left behind venom, unquote. And there it goes on to say, but now when snakes are not found amongst us, it is permitted. This is a clear indication that prohibitions based on sakana can be lifted <coughs> when the danger is no longer present. Uh, there's a footnote there to footnote two. Read that. <coughs> the argument is further strengthened by the f- position of the Magen Avraham. The Magen Avraham on Arachayim Chaim 172.2, dealing with a ruling that one is required to wash one's hands between meat and fish because it is harmful to Davar Acher, another thing, says that, quote, perhaps in this time there is no Sakana of any consequence, for we see a number of things mentioned in the Gemara that are Sakana too, bad moods and other things, but today are not harmful because nature has changed. And also we go according to the nature of a particular country. And the conclusion? The prohibition of fish and meat is based on a specific sakana. Historically, when the sakana ceased to exist, the rabbis had the power to end the prohibition. 
Today we know that there is no sakana affecting tsaras by eating fish and meat together. Oh. Uh, therefore, we would permit not only putting fish and meat on the same plate, but would allow them to be consumed together. So if you're a conservative, do surf and turf is now mutter. All right? So let's think about this responsa. According to the Gemara, the reason why you can't have fish and meat on the same plate is because of a sakana, of a danger. I should also point out here with the Hebrew, in the conservative tissue vote, there, there seems to be a, a tendency that even though they're written in English, Hebrew terms are actually written out in Hebrew. So I kind of cheat after a while because like actually copying it word for word in the Hebrew got a little too annoying. Uh, that little sidebar aside. Does so, Gemara actually say what the danger is? Uh, going with Sarat, leprosy. And there are also a whole bunch of other things. Now, based on... Right, clear evidence in traditional halachic sources, including Shulchanar regarding Yayin Megula, uh, sorry, Mayin Megula, uncovered water that's left uncovered overnight. We no longer are concerned with snakes coming out of the ground and injecting venom. Therefore, it could, should be mutar. Then you also have Magen Avraham, who by no means would be considered a makel on things, saying explicitly, hey, you know what? When the Sakana doesn't apply anymore, certainly the law should be okay too. And based on that logic and reasoning, the conservative movement, Pasca 1900, that there is no problem anymore of eating fish and meat on the same plate. Thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, do we have any idea what the Davar Acher here means? Uh, don't want to get into that. But okay. regardless, we know that there's no actual danger. We can test that. All right, and it's been done. So, what do you think? So you have a clear Xera that's still held, not only held in full force by Ashkenazi Jews, but they're even strict enough not to even have uh, the same fork. It's not just like Emily Post type thing of having your fish fork <laughs> and your main fork. It's, you can still holds my daughter. Exactly. So explain to me then, is this Teshuvah, based on your understanding of Jewish law, correct or incorrect? And if it's incorrect, how is it any different than any other instance where this logic is applied? I wouldn't want to go by my understanding. I'd ask a competent Orthodox rabbi to respond to this. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Who here around this table does my machronim? Blank stares. Who here knows what my machronim is? Okay, why do you not do my machronim? Because I'm a bad Jew on this front. Well... Because I, I don't entirely understand the rationale for it. The basis that people don't do Mayim Achronim today is, again, the similar situation, where the Gemara says it's because of Malach Sedomit, whatever the sodomite salt is, and people say, well, we don't know what this is anymore, it's no longer a problem, therefore it's no longer an obligation. People who eat food with their hands mm. uh, generally will do Mayim Achronim. I mean, not Jews necessarily, but... Um, We're not talking about generally. There are enough people who don't, and who don't do it. Also, people say it doesn't apply to women, even though there's no basis for that in Allah either, right? The the you know the salient quote here is there is a clear indication that prohibitions based on sakana can be lifted when danger is no longer present. Now that is demonstrably true within what you would call orthodox halachic sources. So the question then becomes, why is it okay or legitimate when orthodox decisors decide that these dangers don't apply anymore, but it would be any less legitimate when the conservative rabbinate makes the exact same logical application to a different source that the orthodox have it? There isn't any logic to it. Mm -hmm. 
But my yeah. question is, why haven't the Orthodox done the same thing? Valid question, too. Well, in terms of why haven't they done the same thing, you can't say that they're violating a prohibition by separating it. Meaning, if you're going to be strict on matters of Sakana, do you violate an Isur? No. So I'll, it, it does get a little bit more interesting when I got a question recently on uh, using, uh, I, I know I butchered the pronunciation, of the Worcester sloth. Thank you. Like, you'll actually find some that have a label that says OU fish on it. All right? So, yeah, I'm, I kid you. I forget cool. which brand, but I was, trust me, this thing does exist. OU fish. Yeah. If you're following this logic, there should be absolutely no reason why that can't be applied onto a steak directly. Assuming you believe in ruining a good steak with <laughs> sauce, right? But let's say you're using it for cooking purposes, right? right? If I want to make a separation between one group and another, I keep laws or make things that they don't do so I, I can say, look, look at them, ah, we are better. Wonderful. So now you're no longer talking about halacha, you're talking about sociology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? I'll, 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 I don't know if I'll add to that or compliment that, but can we have a thing of consider the source? Why? The logic works, the logic works, unless you're saying it depends on people, right? Well, Because then you get to last week's class of Das Torah, where only certain people are allowed to have certain uh, opinions and others aren't. And then you have to come up with some objective definition, why are these people okay to deviate from halacha, but these people aren't? Because one is leading you down a slippery slope and the other aren't. As opposed to the others? How? Or let me put it this way. How big of a gadol do you have to be in order to overturn Takanat Chazal? The answer is you need a bait in gadol b'chafman gadol b'minyan. But guess what? Bali Tosfot weren't that either. Now, if you're viewing it from a rule of law, the same rules apply to everyone equally. Once you start saying that different people are under different categories of different laws, well, you're going to need to support that. And you're going to need to come up with objective definitions such that everyone pleased by the same rules. Otherwise, you're no longer talking halacha, you're paskining partisanship and sociology like George suggested. That's not halacha anymore, that's sociology. That's saying we're right because we say we are, as opposed to we're actually following law. Mull it over for a bit. Next, next one we have, and this gets to the slippery slope question. I'll have to call your father to ask for help on this one. He's not going to bail you out, by the way. In fact, I can predict if you do speak to him, he's going to be a lot less politically correct than I am. Good. C- consider that. <laughs> so you do ask a wonderful question, though, of where does the line draw? Is there a Davarso? So going back to... Um, 1996, they're dealing with the question of solemnizing marriage between a Kohen and a divorcee. So this was written in 1996, and it was approved 12 in favor, 4 opposed to abstaining. Um, though it, I, I have to point out here that I you know, took out most of the body. This was actually discussed way back in the 50s. Uh, and in the response, they refer back to the argument from the 50s, too. So for the greater details, I would suggest not only reading this in full, but also reading the earlier response. And the uh, question is, may a member of the RA officiate the marriage of a Cohen and a divorcee? So, uh, conclusions. One, 
The prohibitions of marrying a Kohen, of a Kohen marrying a divorcee is clearly biblical. The reality is that few Kohanim who turn to us for marriage are concerned about their status of, as Kohanim. A refusal to solemnize their marriage would only lead them to be married in a civil ceremony or a ceremony without full chuppah and kedushin. That's conclusion part one. Two, while we regret the dissolution of marriage divorce in our, uh, of a marriage, divorce in our day offers men and women an opportunity for a second chance to develop a second, a successful marital relationship. We also no longer perceive a divorcee, uh, as a woman who has been discarded by her former husband and hence not suitable as a spouse for a Kohen. Methodologically, what they're doing here is effectively saying this was the reason why a Kohen, a priest, is not allowed to marry a divorcee. Since that reason no longer applies or is no longer relevant, therefore, we're talking about a different scenario. Three, the principle of Beit Din Matnin La'akor Davar Mina Torah is applied only when faced with extreme situations, and we regard intermarriage crises as such a situation. We also note the high rate of intermarriage and divorced women who are often single mothers with minor children. Four, we therefore support the decision of two Jews to marry, even when he is a Kohen and she is a Grusha, and a member of the rabbinical assembly may solemnize such a marriage. Five, with the negating of the prohibition of Leviticus 21.7, children born of marriages between Kohen and a Grusha are not Chalalim, and the Kohen is no longer disqualified to serve as a Kohen in our services or rituals. Six, such marriages may be properly celebrated in a public manner. Our goal continues to be uh, uh, to be to assure that such celebrations be kasher. All right. Methodologically here, simple. You're talking about one. What was the reason for the prohibition? Prohibition no longer applies. Therefore, it's mutter. That is a halachic approach of a hermeneutic that you find repeatedly throughout traditional halachic literature. Whether or not you like the conclusion, but this does beg the, this does help the question of at what point do you draw the line? And that is not a question that many people are free to answer because if you're following that method, right? And we'll also deal with we have the final section here is going to be on certain critiques of how do you know that those are the real reasons? What are the values to which you're addressing? We'll see that in the uh, critique section. Uh, Corey and then Dan. Yeah, in, in, this, uh, in this particular case, I feel like the multiplication of arguments, like the, the fact that they're, they're saying, like, well, there's this, but then there's also this and also this, mm-hmm. actually weakens the central argument. Because to me, it would be stronger if you simply went out and said, this was the rationale for the prohibition in the first place. Here is why it no longer applies, because the way our society has changed, yeah. therefore. In fairness, this was just the conclusions. Yeah. They get into that in the whole body. And they do, you know, extrapolate in greater detail. Yeah, I just mean that like the, the fact that they, they bring the danger of intermarriage into this, I feel weakened. Uh, well that they argue by means of Hora'at Sha'ah. Meaning, it's very easy to say, like the driving the shul on Shabbat uh, responsa. That was set up as a takana, as a decree, because of what they saw was a clear and present danger. Right. Now, when you're talking about clear and present danger, that's a matter, and what is hora acha? That's already a matter of subjectivity. I can think it's bad, you can think it's bad, you and I can both argue on to what degree is it bad, and we could also disagree over what should be the countermeasures, Right. But at least they're, they're rely, by relying on a Hora Atcha'a type, they're putting themselves within some degree of 
you know, legitimate halachic ground. We also gave an earlier shear on Haracha. Dan, and then we go around. I, I remember who had their hands up, so Dan was next. Can you just give an example or two of, of uh, where that process was applied uh, traditionally in the Talmud? Of Haracha? Well, the very fact that we still... No, not Haracha, but uh, that um, uh, there was no reason stated... Uh, we are guessing that this is, or, or we're, we, we think that this was the reason and this reason no longer applies. Off the top of my head where it's not explicitly stated, nothing's coming to me. Uh, you'd have to give me some time, but I know it's frequent enough. Uh, you had a question? Oh, George. Um, what is the view of Chalitza? If I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah. Um, Orthodox versus conservative. There are actual whole separate other things on there that, that's isn't well beyond this. Isn't that biblical? And how can they yeah, it, it's well beyond the scope of what we have here. Um, but you mentioned about the biblical side of things. So one area that they're you know, relying on is like, wait a second. There are times in the Gemara where it seems that they overturned biblical law, right? Or they reinterpreted something in such a way that biblical law wouldn't even apply. Okay, Bain Sawer Umore is one example like that. Or beyond that, using Kavod Habriot. Right, you've got statement in the Gemara of Kovod Habriot um, honoring the I don't know uh, the honor of the creations. You know, could even uh, surpass the laws of the Torah. So you take that to an extreme, and bam, everything. You know, you say, well, we're going to call this Kovod Habriot. Poof, therefore it's mutter. Right. So everything that's being done is grounded in some form of traditional rabbinic precedent. All right. Curtin, take the next statement. This is Mayor E. Rabinowitz. Oh, I'm sorry, Dana. Yeah. Okay. Um, if this is deconstructed later, then I guess stop me. But their item number three here, they're saying in the intermarriage crisis is such that a divorced woman, at least um, what I'm extrapolating from here is they're saying a divorced woman faced the option of not marrying a Kohen because of the law would go out and marry someone who's not Jewish. Possibly. Again, you and I can argue on Hora'at When there was a rabbi who, um, when uh, Barack Obama was elected president, you know, gave and spoke in a church, right, and you know, tried to justify based on Hora'at like, well, even though you're nom- normally not supposed to be in a church... Okay, wait a second. Is that really Hora'at If a rabbi isn't there, are the Jews going to be in worse shape? Right? Now, I don't know, you know. Look, even if you're going to be, you know, the biggest Republican shill against Obama, you'd be hard pressed to say that he's been specifically anti Semitic. You might think he's been bad for the country in a whole lot of weird ways, but to say that he's targeted Jews. I've not seen a single conspiracy theory on that. And, and that's saying something. All right? You follow these things. Unfortunately. You know, I, I have enough friends who are, you know, well, whatever. Jews could be not. Israel, yes. But do you think that would have made a difference? When you talk about what is Haratsha, you and I can make a different call here. In this shul, right, when I first got here, people said, well, we need to open up the Aron and count the Aron Kodesh for a minion when there are only nine people here because that's Haratsha. I said, no, it's not. You've got 12 other daily minyanim here, and if you want a minion here, you show up. Horatcha isn't because you're being lazy. That was my opinion, right? Other people can take a different legitimate opinion on what is Horatcha, and when you rely on that, you're explicitly referring to rabbinic discretion as opposed to text basis for it. 
You're saying, as a rabbi, I'm entitled with the discretion of Hora'at Sha'ah, just as other rabbis were. Now, you and I are going to make different calls on what's Hora'at Sha'ah, but, you know, then's the breaks. Okay? So, uh, wanted to include one here on women's ordination. This is part of a huge, huge response, but there was one really, you know, important line that was important to include here. This is from Mayor Rabinowitz's uh, response in Advocates, Halachic Responses on the Ordination of Women, dated 1984. Go. Yeah. The areas from which they were excluded are those in which they were considered as not being knowledgeable or reliable due to their lack of experience or interest. For example, their material status depended on their husbands or fathers, and therefore women were not conversant with or interested in monetary matters. The social reality was that women did not fit the definition of gedolim of Chorim, free adults. This is no longer the case. Contemporary women have careers, are involved in all kinds of businesses and professions, and have proved to be as competent as men. Therefore, we must reclassify the status of women vis-a-vis a dude based upon the realities of our era. The general criteria established by the rabbis, whereby one is to be adjudged, qualified to serve as a witness, may very well remain the same. What has changed is the reality which now enlarges the number of those who meet the criteria. Again, women can now count as witnesses because the original reason why, according to Mayor Rabinowitz, they couldn't, no longer applies anymore, therefore it's permitted. Right? Same logic, same application, drastically different result. Yeah. No. Okay. Now, on... Yes. I find it very difficult to understand why this logic is rejected by the Orthodox movement, specifically regarding women. It's not rejected. It's selectively applied. Example, women saying blessings on Mitzvah Mangarama, on time-bound commandments, that, according to strict Talmudic reading shouldn't be done. According to the Baalei Tosfot, sure, because, you know, women are already doing it, they've already accepted upon themselves. And it's based on that Tosafot that the conservative movement started counting women in Minyan. Right? So, that you'd have to, you know, ask an explanation for the... I mean, I've said in the past that Orthodox Jewish law is comically inconsistent on this point. When law changes and when it doesn't change. Uh, someone who is, I was talking to uh, one of our you know, members here over Simchat Torah, and she said that her mom had an answer to it. It's like, it's always when it disadvantages women. It's like then, and I said, well, actually, that's not entirely the case, like, because you have these other examples, but, you know, I see your point. Um, but yes, that is a fair question to ask on, you know, Orthodox Judaism of why do you apply certain things in this case and why do you apply others? And the truth is, I'm not sure you're really going to get an answer or at least not one based on pure logical reasoning that's going to be internally consistent, but it's mostly going to explain, here's why we do what we do in justifying the existing practice, as opposed to saying, well, this comes naturally out of the law. So how do we justify that in an orthodox shul, women would not wear a talus, but in uh, a conservative shul, they do? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, too. In fact, I got into somewhat of an argument with Ruf Tendler about that. Um, because he was upset when there was one time in Shear, he was complaining that a woman went to a store in Israel to buy a pink talit uh, to wear it. A pink talit, meaning a talit with pink stripes. All right. I get, listen, I have never been in the market. I mean, I, I would, so I'm only going to have to assume such things exist. All right. And I actually challenged him on that. And it's like, wait a second. 
What's the difference about her putting that on? She, you know, it, how, or to put it another way, how is it different uh, for her putting on a pink talit or a talit with pink stripes than shaking a lula venetra with a bracha? Right? These are both positive time-bound commandments. And even if you want to hold Rav Moshe's prohibition that, well, it's a Begit Ish problem, well, first off, I mean, the very fact that it's pink stripes seems to indicate that it's feminine. I mean, unless, I mean, it came later that pink became a popular style for men. But that aside, pink is usually associated as a feminine color. So based on that, she's actually following Rav Moshe Feinstein. So what's the problem? Uh, one of the times he slapped me upside the head. Um, yeah, didn't quite get a straight answer out of that one. You invoked his father-in-law. I did. Well, th- the truth is, it, he also was upset when a particular woman went to the hotel and benched Lula Venetro at the hotel. And he said, that's a problem. And I raised my hand. I said, wait a second. If you're telling me the problem is a brachal of Atala, that she's saying a blessing she shouldn't have said, by saying, Asher Kedishana bin Mizotavitzivanu, thanking God for a commandment which he didn't have, then I'd agree. It's the same brachal of Atala your wife makes when she benches Lulav and Esrog in the sukkah. What difference does it make where it is? Uh, and she all, he, he slapped me upside the head for that one. Then we also got into an argument about Baltosif. Um, but we, I should say that we do get along, and he actually did appreciate, he appreciated more people engaging him than, you know, the typical sycophants who just wanted recommendations for med school. And there were plenty of those too. So, you know, when he slapped me upside the head, it was done in a, you know, very loving fashion. Yeah. She's asking, if you go to any municipal uh, office, you'll see a chassid standing behind his wife and his wife filling out all the business papers. Yeah. So how can he say, uh, turn around and say that so again, this depends on how you define the halachic system. If you, of the other thing. It could be that. You know, it, I mean, it's not like I'm looking at somebody else, but I am taking my wife to to sign papers for me. Okay. She has the knowledge to do it. She knows how to do the arithmetic. So in order to answer, so okay, so we'll we'll try to answer some of these questions by going through the next section that deals with the critiques. Okay, because some of these I think do a, a lot of the things that have been mentioned around this table do get addressed. And when I talk about critiques, uh, for the most part, I'm not citing, again, orthodox partisan shills. I'm citing internal critiques of certain things that happen. One of them, this unfortunately is not online, but it's one of my favorite passages, and you'll see why. I know I mentioned this to you before. This is from a statement. This is a statement and resolutions proposed by uh, Rabbi Louis M. Epstein from the Proceedings of the Rabbinical Assembly in 1948. Okay? Uh, I think we're up to you, Corinne. Uh, I just did status of women. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, George? The committee has been blamed for many things uh, for which the rabbinical assembly and not the committee is responsible. Uh, it, it was not the committee that brought our effort on behalf of the Aguna to an end. It was the rabbinical assembly. In, con- in connection with uh, the war, the committee formulated a katana, uh, ketubah. ketubah uh, clause to protect soldiers' wives should their husbands be reported missing in action. I should be ashamed to ask for a show of hands how many of our members employed this device proposed by the committee. So to stop here for a second, a little bit of history. Uh, the conservative movement was way, way ahead of Orthodox in the matter of Aguna. They, as the earliest that I know they started dealing with it was in like the late 20s in response to MIEs from World War I. 
And they came up with a solution that in the event it come up again, you know, wars happen again, to put something in the Ksuba to sort of assist with the Aguna crisis. Anyone's interested, check out the proceedings of the rabbinic assembly from way, way, way back in the day. But what he's, his complaint is here is that the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards came up with a decision. And despite being the main arm, or at least the main halachic arm of conservative Judaism, rabbis didn't actually do what they said. I know, it's shocking. <laughs> but one complaint that he had as an internal critique of the system is simply, y'all aren't listening to us. Like, we're trying, we are doing things, you don't listen to us, you can't really blame us, the Committee for Jewish Law and Standards, if you don't actually follow our recommendations. And I think that's a fair critique that anyone who's been in a managerial position can appreciate. You tell people to do stuff, they don't do it, and then they blame you for them not doing what you told them. Anyone here ever work in consulting? There you go. Take the next paragraph. And this is a really phenomenal paragraph, George. The membership of rabbinical assembly probably represents a dozen shades of theological opinion and religious conviction. The committee has asked the impossible when it is expected to meet every one of these diversified beliefs and demands, and at the same time, as a mere trifling... Uh, consider As a mere trifling consideration. Consideration to meet halfway the demands of Jewish law and tradition. What is worse, uh, every shade of opinion stands out by itself and cannot be funded uh, into funded into a composite opinion uh, of the rabbinical assembly as such, nor can it be subjected to the views of the wisdom and the conscience of the rabbinical assembly. Those who do not want the election of Israel uh, in their prayer book reckon very little with the rabbinical assembly's sentiment. And those who wish to marry a divorcee without a Jewish get are a law unto themselves. The result is that the committee has given authority to say yes to every question, but never to say no. For such a purpose, we do not need a committee on Jewish law. A good brother of white wife will do. Right? This is the line I kept quoting to you. A good, right? When you're trying to be an open to everyone, when do you say no? Especially when you know in this name of pluralism. Right? If you're going to follow a halachic system, you're going to actually have to draw a line somewhere. Now, he had proposed uh, later on um, in this thing a list of a bunch of points and uh, is part of several resolutions. And accordingly, these are the resolutions I would suggest. Number five in his list was, the committee shall be instructed to hold itself bound by the authority of Jewish law to labor towards progress and growth of the law to the end of adjusting it to present-day religious needs and orientation, whether it be on the side of severity or leniency. Number six, the committee shall record its decisions in majority-minority views, counting only such views that recognize the authority of the law. Right? That's an important thing here, because he says there are people in the conservative movement who are fine not even keeping any semblance of superficiality of the law. In all cases where the minority and majority views are held by the members of the committee, the rabbinical assembly members shall be at liberty to follow one or the other. Both of those resolutions were defeated. <laughs> right? There were others that passed, but the two lines here operative of one, determining on stringency and leniency, two, to only consider the opinions by those who already accept some form of Jewish law, didn't take. Yeah. I think this is one of the problems of conservative Judaism. The difference to me 
between conservatives and orthodox mm-hmm. is an orthodox Jew uh, believes down to his bones that God wants him to do certain things and he just needs to figure out what those things are. Yeah. That's whereas, actually a second paragraph right. here in a map of Manat. Whereas um, I think most conservative Jews uh, arrogate for themselves a great deal more personal autonomy. Uh Yes, I, I think there's some truth to that, but it's going to require a little bit more explanation that we'll get to next week. Uh, Corey, can you take this is uh, th- this is sort of like a how to put this sort of a behind the back critique, uh, and you'll understand in a second why I put this in. This is Rabbi Elliot N. Dorf, uh, who many of you might be familiar with, writing in a review essay on Rosolovich's classic work, A Halachic Man. This was from Modern Judaism six one, written in nineteen eighty six. Corey, go ahead. Rav Soloveitchik's conceptual imprecision is matched by a similar imprecision in the method which, uh, with which he treats rabbin- uh, biblical and rabbinic sources. He chooses one midrash that suits his purpose and either ignores sources which, wh- wh- that make contrary points or he interprets them against their simple meaning. Yeah. Now, even though he is making this critique on Rav Soloveitchik, which we're not going to discuss whether or not Rosolovitchik does or doesn't. His complaint is that Rosolovitchik chooses one midrash that suits his purpose and ignores sources that make contrary points or interprets them against their simple meaning. Let me put it this way. I mean, this is something that he wrote in 1986, but based on conservative literature in the past, this is not a statement Elliot Dorf has any right to make, especially in light of a whole bunch of other things he said later on. Now, maybe, like, in the subsequent 20 years, he embraced intellectual dishonesty and started engaging in these exact tactics. But what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if you've got a problem with selectively citing sources and reinterpreting that which you don't like or pretending what you don't like doesn't exist, that critique of Rosolovitchik, again, ignoring whether or not it's accurate, can be leveled like a sledgehammer against most of conservative tissue vote. Possibly orthodox, too. Oh, absolutely. But the point is, Elliot Dorf can't make this long, can't make that statement. I, I, due to something I got from my dad, I've got a real, I can tolerate disagreement more than hypocrisy. Now, if you want to complain about Rosolovitchik for a whole bunch of other things, go right ahead. But for Dorf to say, yeah, you can't selectively cite sources to accomplish your own agenda is disingenuous to say the least. Now, again, this was written in 86. This is a long time ago. It's possible he changed his mind and opened up to the world of nuance. Is it possible that he's not denying it for conservatives, that, that it exists as conservatives? He's simply saying, Salavashik's the same as we are. Uh, well, he's calling this an imprecision in method. So it's a little bit more than that. It's not just that he's the same as we are, as much as he's saying he's actually doing it. He, he's not, by use, leveling the accusation of imprecision, <laughs> right? Is a Against said, a brisker. Good. I, well, you can argue, the truth is you can actually do make certain arguments about imprecision because they really don't care about grammar so much. Um, so there are different levels about precision. When you're leveling a charge of imprecision, it's not just ideology. It's you did a bad scholarly research thing. Meaning if it was just a matter of like, hey, we're really all the same, right? If that was the core point of what he was saying, fine. Once you're leveling the charge of imprecision, you're saying there's something really hardcore substantively wrong with your method. At least as I read. If anyone's interested, this is in Modern Judaism 6.1. Uh, you can only fi- find it online. It's behind a paywall. Um, but it is accessible. Modern Judaism. You can get archives of Modern Judaism online if you're really that interested. 
No, uh, I, I J Star should have, might have it, but I know. I, I, I don't. I know. Even if you don't have JSTOR, you uh, many journals you can find individual articles online. And I will take the last one here. This was my father's resignation letter from the Rabbinical Assembly. Uh, this is something that he wrote in 1987. Um, I dug up this letter uh, in Doc's box. I had like a few boxes of papers and files that I had to clear out when my parents moved to Israel. And one of the great things about having the scanner that I do built into the printer is I just auto-fed everything in there, got rid of a whole bunch of like physical papers, and this is one of the gems that I found. And he writes, again, this is abridged, feel free to read the whole thing online. And this gets to the question that we were discussing before about values. And it, the reason why I put this at the end here is that it segues nicely into what we'll talk about next week. I've come to realize that for most people, ethics refers to the values that make them feel good. But we are commanded to be holy, not happy. The values encoded in Jewish tradition are not congregate with the values of the secular academy and all liberal Judaisms, conservative Judaism included, look to this knowledge class for approval. The secular community has decided that gender neutrality is a dogma. So conservative Judaism, in its desire to be current, agrees on, quote, ethical grounds. I believe that the modern Jew is given the choice to choose between two irreconcilable orthodoxies. Given the vehemence which has, assumed the eschat- which has assumed eschatological proportions in which the issues of women rabbis and cantors has been pushed, referring specifically, Dr. Shores pointed to a 9-3 decision of the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards in 1974 without telling anyone that the nine votes opposed women cantors. And he waves the so-called, quote, Roth responsum, which was not even accepted by the CLJ, uh, CJLS or the faculty of JTS, it is clear that feminism is now a new fundamentalism. I choose the orthodoxy of Jewish tradition over the orthodoxy of current secular taste. This gets into the question of, when you adjust to social needs and passing fads, who makes those determines and how? It was my father's opinion at the time that there's no real universal ethical morality, but the leadership was at least determined by whatever the secular academy was determining. These are our agendas. And instead of, you know, actually being a leader, was sort of reacting to it and thus had to reinterpret Jewish law in order to reconcile with whatever um, liberal Jewish American culture deemed appropriate. Now, whether or not this was a fair charge or not, I will leave that up to other scholars, but at least this was his opinion as he left. Is this argument that gender neutrality and feminism is a passing fad? I don't think it's a matter of a passing fad, but he said this is a fundamentalism as in, this is primarily what you need to believe such that anything to the contrary is no longer acceptable. For example, where it might have at once been presented as an option in conservative Judaism, now if you dare have a separate seating synagogue, you're pretty much going to be ostracized. And that is a huge distinction. Did Halevi leave the same Pretty much around the same time, as well as a few others. All right. So the big question that we're still left with is worthwhile discussing. How do you think, from what we've seen at least here, is conservative Judaism really functionally that different than Orthodox Judaism? Method, or at least in terms of method. They follow their gedolim. Other people follow their gedolim. Take the question of Eruv, and this is something I've posed to people in the past. If I'm a conservative Jew, right, my rabbis say, I can drive to shul on Shabbat. My community drives to shul on Shabbat. Am I being Mechalel Shabbat? 
Yes. You say yes. But in, now, in these communities, it's often a choice between driving to Shul on Shabbat or not going to Shul. Well, hold off on that. Hold off on that point for a second. Dana says yes. Why do you say you're Michal al Shabbat? Well, for God's sake, if this is a, if this is about Shul being too far away. Mm-hmm. These are generally people in suburbia who can afford to have a finished basement by an iron code. That that wasn't my point here. My point is, they're basing it on the fact that A, their community does it, and B, their rabbis say it's okay. Their communities also eat chaz. Okay, but if those are your criteria for it, let's apply that same standard to the Orthodox. There are a whole bunch of, say, Eruvin out there and that don't fit the criteria defined by the Gemara. Is Eruvin Doraisa or Durabanan? Uh, the creation of an Eruv is Durabanan. The Isur of carrying on Shabbat is quite possibly Doraisa, depending on how you're doing it. Okay. Right? So let's say the use of 600,000, right? We discussed it this past week as a really huge, huge dispensation that is no basis in Talmudic law. Right? Yet, a lot of people rely on it. Why? Their community does it, and their rabbi said so. So my question is, when are you allowed to deviate from the Gemara, and when are you not? Or why is the Orthodox devia- Why are the Orthodox deviations kosher, and the conservatives not? Or to put it even another way, how from do you have to be, such that when you deviate from the Gemara, they're not really considered deviations? You don't have to answer right now. You can think about that for a while. Just remember, the whole point of halakha is, these are rules that have to apply to everyone. And once you start making exceptions for one, you have to explain why they're different than them and give real reasons behind why they're different. To say fish and meat on the same plate, oh, that's not a legitimate heter, when they're basing it explicitly on the language found in the Shulchan Aruch and Magin of Ram, and people who are going to complain against that don't do Mayim Achronim, probably don't care about Mayim Megulah, right? How do you justify which deviations are okay and which are not? Because of the source. These, these people are basically saying there are certain areas of the halacha that don't apply anymore. Mm. And they're commonly accepted practice, okay, let's just, among the Orthodox. So what makes the Orthodox better? Again, if you're defining then that what Orthodox does is legitimate simply because they're Orthodox, then you got yourself a nice little circular reasoning there. Your father, your father said it. Your father said it that 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 the conservative are adjusting based on current fads or trends. And what do you think Haredim do? Haredim are responding to what's going on on the other side, at least in part. In part because they're crazy. And what but. difference do you have between their deviations from halacha and these, assuming these are deviations? See, here's, here's the real crucial thing here. And I've had to you know, explain this in a lot of different ways. It's not that the Baalei Tosafot were conservative Jews. It's that conservative Jews were predominantly Ashkenazim. Meaning, there's methodologically... I see very little of what they do differently than hasn't been done by a whole lot of rabbis elsewhere. They may take the same method in different directions, but they're pretty much doing the exact same thing. Now, I can argue on both, and I do argue on both. Where you get into issues of either hypocrisy, or I think what might be really, people could be, and yourself be struggling with is, you want to say that what you're doing is right, but when you actually hold everyone by the same standard, everything begins to fall apart. 
And if, if you if, double check, go back to the class that we did on the early Minagashkinas, and you'll see that the fundamental assumptions here might be very well correct, right? And if one, if it's okay for one person to do it, then it's okay for another. If you want to ask a question of authority, who are the who are the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards to make their opinion? That gets to last week's Shir of Das Torah. Who gave you know this particular rabbi the right to go against the Gemara? Oh, it's because the consensus of their community said so. Well, the consensus of conservative Judaism said that they can do it. So you have a rabbi in their community that have their own processes that might deviate against strict Talmudic law. Great, but you can apply that to the Moetzes Gedolia Torah. There are a bunch of rabbis legislate against Jewish law. There you go. Good example, if you want one, men serving in the army. According to strict Jewish law, everyone's got to... Either in today, uh, today's uh, world, either everyone has to serve in the army or it's forbidden for anyone to serve in the army. Those are your two options. You know, people try to get out of it. Living in Israel, right? You have rabbis on the right. Uh, my um, sister was told by a family member on her husband's side of the family that their rabbi considered a great guttle, said it's better to live in America amongst Jews than live in Israel amongst, you know, the secular, which contradicts an explicit Gemara. What's the difference? Right? In matters of, and if you want to talk about more matters of Mahshava, just read the commentary in your typical art school Gemara when the Gemara talks about uh, theology that contradicts the standard party line. And then they quoted a whole bunch of people that have to reinterpret Gemaras. Because God forbid the Gemara actually means what it says. The standard party line? Of the right-wing Orthodox world? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Right? So, and then you get into the question of values here and to what you adjust. That we're going to get to next week when we tackle open orthodoxy, uh, which is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, You know how the Orthodox look at the conservatives? Yeah. How do conservatives look at the Orthodox? Don't know. Don't really care. Um, because the, the truth, I mean, by don't really care, I mean... They're really Jews, they're off on their own. So the truth is, here's what I think. This is a matter of subjective. Like, this is a sense. It's very easy for Orthodox to dismiss conservative. It is much harder for conservative to dismiss Orthodox. Because for social perception, it's real hard to say, well, the Orthodox Jews get it wrong. So in a sense, if you're talking about social legitimacy... Conservative Judaism needs the needs to be legitimized by the Orthodox more than Orthodox cares about conservative. I think it's because of that you've got these big questions of pluralism. Meaning, if a conservative Jew walks in here and says, "Oh, you're backwards. You're not keeping Jewish laws," like I really don't care what your opinion is. We actually had someone come in last night during Shalos Sodas preaching about Jesus. Right? That's yeah, not a joke. It's strangely enough, it's not even the weirdest thing that's happened in the shul since I've been here. Right? Okay, so you come in and start like, I don't care. But if you go to a conservative shul, the conservatives are a lot more sensitive to conservative bashing than Orthodox are if you try bashing the Orthodox uh, Corinthians. So having spent the better part of a year in a conservative congregation, oh. they really don't talk about the Orthodox very much. And when they do, they're criticizing like Haredim. Ah, there you go. Uh, today, there aren't too many that still criticize conservative. The ones who do are usually from an older generation, and they're fighting the same battles from 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and a lot of things have changed on the ground. And like I argued from the Politics of Exclusion series, the closer you have, the more competition you have, I meaning the closer and the more similar you are, the more you need to bash the other side. Today, conservative and orthodox are so different, so far apart, even if you don't know a single thing of Hebrew, you just go to the temple service, right? Your typical service is from both, you'll 
You know, it'll be apparent just how different they are, such that why do I need to bash conservative? They're no longer... Th- and look, it's not that I ever would, but even amongst the Orthodox, it's toned down a lot because they're not a threat anymore. Some will even point to the le- recent Pew study and say, wow, not only are you not a threat anymore, but you're almost gone anyway. So like, pff, you know, f- forget being a challenge to us. You guys are worried about, you know, preservation. Yeah. When the Jesus girl came in here yesterday yeah. and she started preaching her thing... Oh, it was this is why you come to Shalit Shudis yeah. to learn about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. My, my, only res- my only response to her. Yeah. My only response to her is he was a, he was one of ours before he was one of yours. You know, and and yeah, you, you don't. As a side note, you, you don't argue. You don't argue logically. You know, someone. No, should- no, no, no. I understand that, but I'm saying that. that these folks were one of ours before they were, like, their own thing. Well, again, going back to the Politics of Exclusion series, I gave my own narrative of how I thought conservative Judaism developed based on what I read, which is different than conservative Judaism's own ideological party line. But for that, you know, go back to the Politics of Exclusion series on the beginnings of conservative Judaism. Um, Yeah. Any other questions? All right, so for those who are interested, this coming Wednesday we're going to talk about Eru fights. Next week, open orthodoxy. Have a wonderful week.